Thank you for joining us. To support the podcast, donate at exploringmormonthought.com. Follow us on facebook.com forward slash exploringmormonthought. All right, listeners, welcome back to the Exploring Mormon Thought podcast. Today, I am going to be talking to Mark Karras about a subject that touches the lives of every believer in God and any person of pretty much any religion that I can think of, whether or not you believe in the Christian God or, you know, even any Muslims or even in other traditions where you pray to ancestors. Anyway, the idea of prayer has become, at least for me personally, kind of a I could say it was kind of a catalyst for a faith journey I've been taking for the last few years. And so Mark has a book, and I'll just introduce that right off the bat. It's called Divine Echoes, and with a subheading of Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God. And we'll get into what that exactly means in a minute here. But first off, welcome, Mark, to the podcast. Corey, it's great to be here. I'm really excited to talk on this subject and, and with yourself. So thank you. All right, so I guess first off, Mark, go ahead and tell us a little bit about who you are and just kind of a little bit of background that might shed some light on your views of prayer. Well, I am a licensed therapist. I'm an ordained pastor and adjunct uh, professor at Point Loma Nazarene University. And the subject of prayer is near and dear to my heart for, for many reasons. And when I think of sort of some of the roots, if you will, of what caused me to really reflect on, to really investigate, to deconstruct and ultimately reconstruct petitionary prayer in, in particular, there are a few sort of catalyst events and they have to do with family. So a lot of when you talk to an author, it's really much of our experience that comes to the fore of typically the, the content on top of the, of the book. And for me, it was being a young Christian. And having a mother who was, yes, she was smart and a, a compassionate woman of, of strength. She did her best to raise us. But unfortunately, she was addicted to drugs as far back as I can remember. And as you can imagine, that made it very hard for her to consistently love, protect, and take care of us. But I remember fervently praying for her. Because in my background, back then, I was actually in a Pentecostal tradition. so. Very fiery prayers, very passionate prayers, very warlike prayers, believing that through our prayers, somehow we can change the state of affairs, although that was very mysterious. But if we, it almost seemed if we prayed very loud and passionate to God that he would hear us more, but that's another conversation. But ultimately, my, my mother died of a drug overdose. And so that was after a lot of fasting, a lot of prayer. And so that just stuck in the back of my mind. And then my brother, who was my amazing, adventurous, uh, very smart, creative, loving brother, he would wind up getting paranoid schizophrenia. And then here I go again. I'm warring. I'm praying. We're taking him to deliverance ministries, and maybe it was demonic of origin. And we were just passionate, and we believed that if we prayed hard enough, that those demons would leave my brother and he would be made whole. Unfortunately, that never happened. And he would wind up murdering somebody in prison. Now he's in prison for the rest of his life. I, much of that has to do with being off his medication. 
and some other dynamics. But that really sat with me. And it brings me to a, a quote by the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard, who says, the idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. And, and that specter really haunted me. And then traveling to many foreign countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Japan, South Korea, Cambodia, and other countries, I said, wow, these people, as I would visit many temples, I mean, they're praying just like we are. They're praying for health and prosperity. They're praying for shelter. What's going on with this idea of petitionary prayer? Does it make a difference? And that sort of question, sort of, is it effective, really, really sat with me. And those were some of the, the catalysts, if you will, for prayer. And, and if I can bring up uh, in my research, Elder David A. Bedner of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, he said, even though we recognize the importance of prayer, all of us can improve the consistency and efficacy of our personal and family prayers. And that's an interesting word, efficacy. And that was my, my whole question, too. Can we pray more effectively? And as particularly when it comes to petitionary prayer, and come to find out, we certainly can. All right, great. So, yeah, I mean, that sounds, I mean, obviously, I, yeah, not having some of the same things in my past affect me, but I, you know, like me, or me, like every believer, I would imagine, has prayed for something or someone to get healed of something or something along those lines. And notice that mm, it's not quite as it's, I don't know, like the, if in certain traditions, for example, or if you read the Bible and you're like, well, it seems like all you got to do is, is pray really hard. And then pretty much nine times out of 10, God's going to answer that prayer. Right. <laughs> Ask and you shall receive. Yeah, exactly. That's what we're taught. But lived experience doesn't seem to line up with that. And then, like I said, something like was a catalyst for me also was prayer. And I was just, I don't know, like hadn't felt very close to the spirit for a little while. But I remember feeling like, you know, I'm going mean, to, I need to get better at my prayers. But I, I remember thinking this, you know, whenever I pray, it's basically, I should just pray like this. Like, you know what, God, just do whatever you're going to do anyway, because it doesn't seem like my prayer is going to make a difference. If I pray to be safe for a journey or something, I mean, if that's what you want, that's what's going to happen. If it's not what you want, that's not what's going to happen. So what's the point of me praying? Right. God knows the very hairs in our head, right? So to speak. Yeah. So I definitely sympathize with the direction that brought you into these questions, and I same thing for me. So, if you would, I wanted to start out and follow what you do in your book here. So, I really enjoyed the sections that you broke it down to. You just did the very basics of investigation, deconstruction, and then reconstruction of prayer. So, starting in investigation, I guess a question that would kind of lead you along here would be, what is prayer in general, and how is it supposed to work? And I guess for our sake here, tell us why we're focusing on petitionary prayer in, in, while you're explaining your view of prayer, I guess. Yeah, well, as many of us know, there are different types of prayers. And I'm not talking about, in my book, I'm not talking about sitting in our rooms and praying for ourselves. That's very powerful. I'm also not talking about face-to-face -face prayers, or I would say ear-to-ear -ear prayer sort of on the phone, via the internet. Those have their own sort of unique nuances and questions, but I'm really talking about petitionary prayer. And if I can, just kind of spell that out a little bit. Petitionary prayer for me is, well, 
what's been known as a prayer that's aimed at making requests of God. They make requests of God for answer to life's questions and concerns. And they're also, and this is very important, they're usually pleased for God to be the sole responsible agent to act on behalf of the one who's praying. And I, I sort of define petitionary prayer as this. Talking to God and asking God to love in a specific manner in which God was not doing so beforehand. And it's an interesting definition, but it's really in some ways asking God, hey God, there's this person, there's a situation, can you increase your love in that person's life? Now, what that means, it could be healing, it could be uh, saving, we could think of a situation or, or God root out the hatred, prejudice, and bigotry in our country, or the famous God, give the doctors wisdom. So it's making requests of God to really increase his love. And that's an interesting way to think about it, because is that what it really does? Can God increase God's love by our merely talking to him? And that's another interesting piece. Exchange prayer with talking to God, right? Can talking to God increase God's love in our loved one's lives? So that leads to other questions we'll talk about, I'm sure, shortly. Yeah. Okay, great. So, I, I mean, this might come in the deconstruction, so let's, let's jump to that part. I mean, I'm sure this is from your perspective, too, but from what I've been studying is people didn't necessarily stumble upon petitionary prayer in this fashion just by, you know, being on their own. It, there is a strong precedent for that, at least seemingly, in the Bible and in, mm. and in Mormon scriptures as well. I wonder if you can kind of, uh, I wanted to probably keep this part not as anywhere near as in-depth as in the book, which if you want to, we get his book and he has very good explanations here, but kind of give maybe a couple examples of petitionary prayer that are used in the Bible that, at least from a surface reading, might favor a petitionary prayer type practice, I guess, just because there seems to be a few. Yeah, I think the Bible has so many examples of petitionary prayer. Now, it, it really gets into interesting conversations. I mean, it, it leads to, obviously, theodicy, which we'll talk about. It leads to questions about divine violence. I mean, if you think about Old Testament, uh, you know, sort of Moses and, and other people sort of pleading with God, hey, listen, I know you're about to kill some of our people, but would you kind of reconsider that? And in, in essence, really kind of praying, God, would you change your mind, right? But even throughout the, the Old and New Testament, there are people, Paul was a passionate uh, person of prayer. There's sort of the, the famous uh, example in, in, of course, the, the book of James, which I talk about in the book, sort of getting into sort of the Elijah passage, right? To pray with that kind of fervor and passion like Elijah, who literally prayed and, and it stopped raining for a period of time. And the, there's certainly... Uh, the, the plea to pray, Paul is constantly asking uh, people to pray for himself, uh, to pray for each other. I mean, it's ubiquitous, and not only in the Christian tradition, but as long as humans been alive, prayer has been essential. And if you think about, you know, when sentient beings came into play, the notion of praying to a god who would increase the health of their crops is it's just so innate, it's so wired in, that when we have some form of difficulties in our life, 
if our crops are not growing, if our wife or family members are sick, God, please make it rain. God, please heal my, my brother and sister. And so prayer and even petitionary prayer is, is very common. And of course, like I said, Elijah was a human being like us, and he prayed fervently that it might not, not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And he says the prayer of a righteous person, it's powerful and effective. And that's in the context, really, of, of James sort of encouraging the church to lay hands on and pray for the sick and the sinful and those in need of sort of healing prayer. But that plea to pray and pray in faith and to pray fervently is, man, it's, it's ubiquitous in the biblical text, you know. Okay, so, I mean, I just wanted to talk about that a little bit, just to lead us into this further deconstruction. So, so we have that. We have people that read the Bible, and they're like, well, like I, again, like I said, like, it seems like we should be asking God to do something, but like I said as well, in my experience, it's like, well, if God really is just going to do what he's going to do, then there's no point to that. And then I guess I'll ask it this way. So if you would kind of lead us through some ideas in your book on what kind of the limits on petitionary prayer maybe will there be if we, before we even dive into your further deconstruction, but like just because of if we think about human free will as well as, like you mentioned, like God already supposedly loving everyone. So, like, why on earth would we be asking God to love, or like, you know, to express his love for someone? And if we are, yeah, the implications of that are that he's not already doing that. And if he's not, wow, like, is he really sitting around waiting for us? That type of thing. <laughs> yeah. So, for me, we, we could talk about the problems, so to speak, of traditional petitionary prayer and sort of how that leads into essential kenosis and why a view of God and a view of God's character is going to shape our prayer life. And so let's talk about some of those sort of what makes the traditional understanding of petitionary prayer problematic in regards to God's character. And so, for example, if a Christian relative is praying anxiously, God, pour out your love and Aunt Mary, please, please save her. Now, if this isn't always the case, but usually a plea of, of that kind, a petitionary prayer of that kind, is based on an assumption that God is not already loving and seeking to save Aunt Mary. So the person praying is unknowingly praying prayers that are not really in alignment with the reality of the profound goodness of God, if you will. Because in my understanding, especially as I've gained a little bit more understanding of God's character, God has always loved Aunt Mary. God is presently loving her even when her relative is praying. God is always seeking to save Aunt Mary, mind, body, and spirit. As I've come to understand, God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And I don't need to twist God's arm or talking him into doing what automatically flows out of God's nature and character. So I give this analogy. It's like asking a world-renowned heart surgeon known for her skill and compassion who is in the middle of performing perfect heart surgery on a family member and asking, um, excuse me, can you perform the surgery with skill, professionalism, wisdom, and care? <laughs> right? So it's like many petitionary prayers, they question the goodness of God without even realizing it. Or that famous one, I don't know if in your tradition this is common, but if people are going on a trip or something 
and we know a, a Christian or a, a family member or a friend is going somewhere, God, I, pr- I pray for traveling mercies on, let's say, Sharon. Like, what are we saying there? I mean, that if, if, that if we don't pray, God is more apt to say, you know what? Listen, I needed five people or I needed 30 people to pray for her. But because they didn't, listen, you know, nothing I could do. She's going to get into an accident. But because you prayed for traveling mercies, man, that really encouraged me to be more loving in her life. So it's really interesting to reflect on how we're praying and what that really means in regards to the character of God. Yeah, and further than that, at least, I I can't remember if you used this on the podcast or was actually in the book, but you gave an analogy of kind of like a, a GoFundMe type campaign where God's like, hey, I'm gonna, I would really love to heal so-and-so from cancer, but I'm gonna need 52 prayers in order to do that. It's all or nothing. So go ahead. And, well, I guess it'd be more like a Kickstarter. So you go and if 47 people prayed fervently, like, you know what? So close. I just needed, I just needed four more, but you know what? Can't do it. Not enough people prayed. It's like, like if you put it that way, people would be like, well, no, that's stupid. But a lot of people will think that way because we are asked, you know, like when something doesn't come to pass, I think a lot of people use maybe the excuse of like, well, you know, maybe we just didn't have enough faith or we, we maybe I wasn't praying hard enough or, or something. And it's like, is that really the God that we want to believe in? Someone that would withhold blessings and, and healings and, you know, things like that just because we didn't pray hard enough? Like what, what kind of guy is this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that gets into the sort of the second problem is God is portrayed as passive and cruel. Like if we think about it, and that's what I'm asking us to do is really think about what our prayers are saying in regards to the character of God. But we're actually saying that God has the power to heal, but God chooses not to simply because we didn't talk to God, right? So so God could heal this child of leukemia, and, you know, God chooses to do that sometimes, right? Because we have those few experiences where, wow, the whole church was praying and she was healed. So we sort of have this notion that God is sort of ultimately arbitrary. Like, he, he picks and chooses, well, I'm going to instantly heal this child from leukemia, but I'm not going to heal this child from leukemia. And considering each year nearly 100,000 children die from cancer worldwide, uh, that's really tough to say, that God is actually picking and choosing which children survive and which children don't. And even atheists, right, they're looking at that. And that's why I'm so passionate about this, is because our prayers and the way we portray God by our prayers are giving messages to those who don't know God and thus become obstacles to intimacy with divine love itself, himself, herself. For example, atheistic philosopher, and I use this in my book, George Ray's, you know, he talks about how God, what? God heals some, but not others. And he says, listen, the idea of an omni-God that would permit, for example, children to die slowly of leukemia is already pretty puzzling. But to permit this to happen unless someone prays him to prevent it, this verges on a sort of sadism and moral incoherence. And he says, listen, imagine a doctor who acted in this way. And one wonders what people have in mind in worshiping him. Our prayers matter. 
They matter not just for the world that we live in, but also for uh, for people who really needed a relationship with God. All right, yeah. So, listeners, you can probably tell that this is leading to, I mean, at least this idea of prayer is heavily influenced by the way that you view God's providence or theodicy, as we've talked about a bit on this podcast. So, this problem of evil, like you just basically laid out, of like, well, you know, if God has this power and he's withholding it, and he's supposed to be all-loving, then can he a, even exist? And if and if he does, then yeah, like you said, he's either cruel or or something else. Before we get into Reconstruction, I guess there's one last thing. In Mormonism, I think the most common theodicy would be a soul-building type theodicy. And, mm-hmm. you know, that works for some things, but for some things... Maybe not so much, but, you know, it's just the basic idea that, well, I guess I'll use this example. So when I was in, like, a sophomore or something in high school, Garth Brooks had a super famous song. He prayed every night that his girlfriend would end up marrying him, and it just it didn't work out, and he, he's so distraught and prayed. And then one, one day, like 20 years later, he's married to his current wife, and he sees this old girlfriend there, and he realizes that, you know, it just wouldn't have worked out. And the chorus is, you know, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. So like they, God had this whole plan for me, and even though I was praying, God really knew what I needed, and so he withheld that, and somehow I'm strengthened. Now, that can work for maybe a girlfriend getting married, but if you're talking about someone who, you know, a, let's say a loved one is is dying from cancer, and then you pray, and is, is God really wanting to be like, you know what, I need to teach you a lesson that you're going to build from, so I'm going to let this person die, or worse, if you are that person, and then... I mean, I guess I can't speak if you are the person, because you can learn whatever you're going to learn, but it's just like, if I die, then can I really learn the lesson, at least here on Earth? So, anyway, what what would you say about kind of soul-building theodicies in regards to petitionary prayer? I, I think they're related, and, and it's interesting in my, in my studies coming across a particular prayer by Joseph Smith, if I may read that, that points to sort of this soul-building theodicy, which... I have a slight difficulty with, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. But when, when Joseph Smith felt very abandoned by God, there was a point, and this is in the Doctrine and Covenants, he said, O God, where art thou? Where is the pavilion that covereth thy hiding place? How long shall thy hand be stayed in thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people? So really sort of a prayer of lament really pouring his heart out to God. And then in response to his prayer, Joseph heard God say this, My son, peace be unto thy soul. Thine adversity and thine affliction shall be but a small moment. And then if thou endure it well, God shall exalt thee on high. Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. And I think that's where maybe Mormons get a little bit of their soul-building theodicy, right? It's these things that happen to you, they're for experience, and I'm telling you right now, they will be for your good. Now, another way of looking at it is God is not planning bad. God is not planning evil in our lives, but God has promised to work all things out for our good. Now, that's going to be different than God planning it and willing it, but God is, he's always recycling our stuff into something good. But that doesn't mean that God willed it. A woman who was raped, okay, 
maybe she becomes more resilient. Maybe she uh, increases in compassion and has a heart for those who are wounded and are afflicted and broken and starts an incredible ministry with other women who have been sexually assaulted. That's all well and good. That's what God does. He brings restoration and redemption. But God did not will that rape. God is not sitting there with his daily planner, playing us like puppeteers, giving us these events as if God can unilaterally control what happens anyway. And that's that gets into our, another conversation. But soul-building theodicy, I say that it's it's incredible. Yes, God works all things for the good. That doesn't mean he planned it or willed it in our lives. Yeah, because to your point, if a woman gets raped and then the outcome's good and she finds the love and thing, that's good. But what if she doesn't? That's the thing. And I guess we'll have to talk about the views now. We'll go into it about like an open future and all that. But let's say if God didn't know exactly how a person was going to handle something, to give them something without knowing is going to, you know, that sounds like something like... It's a big risk, isn't it? Well, yeah, but I mean, like, I guess to its most extreme, it sounds like some type of experiment that a, like, you know, like some evil scientist will be doing, like, maybe if I do this, we might get a good result, or you could turn into a mutated monster and and wreak havoc on the planet. Who knows? Let's find out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, God is probably a little bit more uh, loving uh, and and wise than that. I mean, you bring up sort of what I might call non-redemptive suffering. I mean, as, as crazy and horrific and tragic as it is, there are little children who could probably statistically are being raped and molested at this very moment, some being thrown in a ditch to not be found for the rest of their lives. There is no redemptive suffering in that, right? There are things that happen in this earth that some good can be squeezed out. And there are a few events where it'd be hard-pressed to think of how some good can be uh, squeezed out of that as well. So it, it does bring up an interesting point. I mean, some may say, well, there's always redemption in this life or the life to come. So in that sense, maybe there's no real thing of non-redemptive suffering. But certainly there's things that happen on this earth that would be better to not uh, have happened. Right? Yeah, no, definitely. I've been beating around the bush for a bit here, but let's let's just jump to this. So I had Thomas J. Ord on this podcast a few episodes back, and we talked about his book, God Can't, and a little bit about his previous book, The Uncontrolling Love of God. Incredible, yeah. Yeah, and so as we said at the beginning, that's part of your the title of your book is Reconciling Prayer with that idea of uncontrolling love. I wonder if here you can kind of... Guide us through on what brought you to align yourself with Tom's view, and maybe what, what did you think when you first heard about it? Were you already going along those lines, or was that like, huh, I don't know about that? Yeah, I, I was already thinking about this stuff. I actually wrote another book called Season of Heartbreak, and in that last chapter, uh, Healing for the Heartbreak and Soul, in that chapter, I kind of flush out a, a kind of simple theodicy, but it, I was already brewing with the fact that, man, God is loving. Like, I experienced it in my bones. If it wasn't for an experiential encounter with God as love, I don't know where I'd be in the Christian tradition. <laughs> I think that really grounds me with all the, the craziness I could see in sort of the, the religion aspect of it. But I was already brewing with the notion that God is love, and 
God could not have willed my mother to die from a drug overdose. God could have not have willed my brother to have paranoid schizophrenia and spend the rest of his life in prison. And therefore, I saw, wow, God is love, but man, people have choices. And they have agency to make decisions or not. And it really seems that God is not puppeteering things that happen here on the earth. And as I was reflecting on that, then I came across Tom's sort of essential kenosis model, uh, basically saying, yeah, God's eternal nature is uncontrolling love. And I, I heard that, and that resonated with me so deeply, not just on an experiential level, certainly in, in my life, my family's life, and the world around me, but from a biblical aspect of just thinking about what love is. I work in the domestic violence field for a bit, knowing that love is not coercive, it's not manipulative, love is not forceful. There can be a very controlling kind of love. So Ward's notion of uncontrolling love really, really resonated with me. And then I said, hmm, if God's nature is uncontrolling love, if God doesn't control anyone or single-handedly controls anything, then what does that mean in regards to petitionary prayer? And that really got me thinking further, and, and it was kind of this beautiful dance that I, I bring forth in the book that leads me to some interesting conclusions about petitionary prayer. All right, and then I like just a quick recap, I guess, for listeners. So in Thomas Ward's book, uh, or books, I guess now, he has this idea that most people look at God as a all-powerful being who loves. And he kind of reverses that and saying, we know that God is love from, you know, the verses in John, but what if God is a loving being who is powerful? So uh, if you take love as the preeminent characteristic of God's unchanging eternal nature and then bring that all the way down, he is saying that God not only is not just self-limiting like a lot of open theists would say, you know, God could, but he's just choosing not to for, you know, various reasons. But he literally cannot control not just, you know, people and their free will, but everything down to the basic constituents of reality, I guess, if you will, the just everything from the highest organism down to the smallest. The quantum level. Yeah, yeah. the quantum level even. So right. that's a, 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 yeah, like you said, a, a very interesting idea. Obviously, it has a lot in common with a process view, but he differentiates it from a process view just because in, I think in, I don't know, honestly, I think some of it might be a little bit of semantics, but I think in most process views, A, they're hard to pin down, but I think something else outside of God seems to be limiting him in, in the process view, whereas on Tom's view, his nature itself, or you know, whatever it is to be God, that nature of not controlling others unilaterally is what God would have to be. And I think if you think of the definition of love, then, yeah, that, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right? Love doesn't control. Love doesn't force. Love doesn't manipulate. And so, yeah, I mean, his model is basically saying, in, in quoting Ord, because of love, God necessarily provides freedom agency to creatures. And God works by empowering and inspiring creation towards well-being. God cannot control and so that's going to be profound when it comes to evil. 
And so basically, Ward is saying, which is controversial, even though it shouldn't be, that God can't do some things. God cannot lie, right? Hebrews 6.18, God cannot be tempted. James 1.13, cannot be prejudiced. And God cannot control. And what's interesting in my little understanding of Mormon thought is that God is also limited, in the sense, by sort of the uncreated natures of matter, intelligences, and principles. Because they are also eternal with God, in a sense. And God cannot control them, right? So that gets in an interesting aspect of what I understand to be Mormon theology, too, which God is also limited by those sort of eternal dynamics as well. And so prayer is going to be different with that kind of view of God. So if you think about the traditional notion of prayer— Well, if I think of a God who could be like a genie, and I could just rub the lamp by some fervent prayers, and God can instantly make something happen. So I am praying that God would increase God's love unilaterally. God's agent of change. And why not? God is, for them, the most powerful being in existence who can do what God wants, when God wants to do it, how God wants to do it. So that makes prayer pretty exciting in some way that I can sort of motivate or empower, or I don't know what the right word is, uh, I could talk God into instantly making something happen. But if I'm praying sort of with an ancestral kenosis in mind, or even with some Mormon uh, theology in mind, there are some things that God can't do. God is limited, whether it's limited by natures of matter, intelligence, or principles, or limited by God's uncontrolling, loving nature, God can't do some things. And so when I'm praying for my brother to be saved from an addiction, you know, what am I praying here? Not only that, but in in Ward's view, and in my view, uh, realizing that God is love, love by love's sort of essence in nature Seems like love would moment to moment seek to maximize wellness, to maximize goodness, to maximize beauty and truth in each and every moment in all of our lives. Like that just seems like what love would do. And thankfully, that's who God is. That is what God does each moment to moment. And that's going to affect how I pray. That's going to affect, hmm, God can't you know, snap fingers and heal my brother instantly. That's a good thing in a sense, because now I know God is not this some evil plan where God wants my brother to be sick, is the power to instantly heal him, but chooses not to. It's that, wow, the God that I love and believe in is literally grieving with me because God wants my brother to be healed and saved from his addiction as well. We're both grieving for the vision of love and shalom that we both want. And so, wow, that changes how I pray. So instead of praying to God, I'm praying with God for a mutual vision of beauty and shalom that God wants to. That's powerful. That's paradigm shifting. That's very different from traditional notions of prayer. Oh, definitely. So you call this in the book conspiring prayer. So this is a major shift of petitionary prayer, like you said, a, you know, a genie or like wishing on a lucky rabbit's foot to really what I would call a, or I think you call as in the book, 
like a relational view of prayer. There's there's a big movement in you know Christianity to move towards what's called open and relational theology, which is you know open meaning the future isn't necessarily set and it's literally open, but relational in that God is not this isn't really ever been a thing in Mormonism, but I think it kind of in effect can be because of some things that people believe about God, but that God is passive, meaning he's able to be, he is the most affected being because he is in relationship with all beings and all things. So that is a, that's a major shift to, to say, how would you pray to the most related being in the universe? Would you, right. you know, what does he want from you or what, what is, how is that going to look? And so mm-hmm. go ahead and explain a little bit more about what is conspiring prayer and how you came up with that definition, kind of what you have in mind with yeah. that. You know, first, before I do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the cost of traditional petitionary prayer and why that leads me to my view of conspiring prayer. There's one more problem that's instrumental in why I wrote the book, and that is it's my provocative understanding that traditional prayer contributes to evil and suffering in the world. Now, let me unpack that because some of your listeners are like, what are you talking about here? And this gets into my my passion, my thrust of why this is so important for me. If people are praying traditional prayers, believing God is the sole agent of change, what's going to happen if we put the responsibility on God to the people that we're praying for, to the events, to the situations that are in desperate need of the grace of God? In other words, if we have a person who's hurting and we have an event or, let's say, a a particular nation, let's say a a tsunami came and they they need help, they need sort of assistance and and, uh, sort of Jesus with skin on, right? The, The body of Christ, the hands and feet of God. If I pray, God, you heal this person, you save this person, you clothe this person, you feed this person, it's going to contribute to more evil and suffering because Ironically, if God is doing all that God can do, my continual praying and belief that God's going to take care of it is actually doing nothing for the people who need the help to which I am praying for. So, in essence, people aren't getting the assistance they need because we're putting the responsibility on God. And when you think about statistics like every 10 seconds a child dies from hunger, Every 98 seconds, another American is sexually assaulted. Every 33.5 minutes, someone is murdered. Uh, over 52,000 people will die from drug overdoses this year. You know, our praying for God feed this child and heal this person from addiction, and man, it does nothing to those people who really need practical assistance from people who are the hands and feet of Christ. So that's sort of the passion of sort of saying, listen, we need to rethink this prayer, this kind of petitionary prayer. Is it really effective? Is it doing the things that we think it's doing? And if not, man, we need to rethink it because people are sort of being stuck in the mire and the crap that they need to get out of. And we're just leaving them there and hoping that sort of if we pray hard enough, God will do it himself. So that's sort of the backdrop of why this is so powerful. So I said, listen, in view of God's loving, uncontrolling, loving nature, in view of there's things that God can't do, in view of the fact that people can make all kinds of crazy choices, 
because they have agency and free will to the extent that they have, quote, free will. And so I came up with this conspiring prayer, and it comes from the Latin conspirare, which literally means to breathe together, to act in harmony toward a common end. And I also like it because to conspire has a sort of contemporary negative connotation, which is sort of the plot what someone to do something wrong or evil. And when you think about it, if you are evil in the world and I'm coming at you with love, that's going to feel wrong. So it's a form of prayer where we create space in our busy lives to align our hearts with God's heart, where our spirit and God's spirit breathe harmoniously together, and where we plot together to subversively overcome evil with acts of love and goodness. And so that's going to be very different than sort of the traditional notion of petitionary prayer. So in traditional petitionary prayer, God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. In conspiring prayer, our view of God says, no, God can intervene and single-handedly stop evil events from occurring. In the traditional notion of petitionary prayer, God is arbitrarily loving and shows favorites. In conspiring prayer, the view of God loves consistently and fairly. In traditional petitionary prayer, God intervenes on occasion. Conspiring prayer, the view of God is, God is moment-to-moment loving and maximizing the good in people's lives. So it's sort of, there's one coin with two sides, and the one side is view of God in conspiring prayer. Then there's that practical aspect of, well, in traditional petitionary prayer, we pray to God. In conspiring prayer, we pray with God. In traditional petitionary prayer, it's God, you bring shalom in this person's life or situation. In conspiring prayer, it's God, how can we creatively work towards shalom in this person's life or situation? In traditional petitionary prayer, we speak, God listens. In conspiring prayer, we speak, God speaks, and we both listen. So just kind of flushing out the sort of two paradigms there. No, very helpful. And that, and that's awesome. And the, the juxtaposing in that way makes it even more beautiful and being like, wow, I mean, well, of course. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but even if you can't buy fully into this full, uncontrolling love of God view, mm-hmm. if you, I, I think, well, I think it was in God Can't Ord's book. If you, if you think of the traditional view and say, well, I'm praying for someone to be healed and it's not, it's not happening. So I guess, you know, there's other factors involved there. There may be, you know, down at the quantum level, things aren't doing something that, they're, that they could be doing to make this person better. But ultimately, I know that God could rearrange all that and, and make it so that it is better. And so I'm going to keep on praying. And he asked this interesting question in there, which I think, you know, we would too, is, well, how's that working out for you? Yeah. And, and that's kind of my view there. It's like, well, all, you're doing this kind of prayer, but... How how is that working out? It's, it doesn't seem to be working out. And so this paradigm shift in prayer is, at least in my life, I've, before I had a name for it, before, you know, I kind of gained large affinity for this type of view, and I've come to something pretty close to what you described as conspiring prayer too. But like the, the shift in saying, like at the beginning, like I said, like, God, just do whatever you're going to do. I don't think I re- it really matters what I want to, wow, this matters. And instead of prayer being a wish list, prayer is, like you said, like a, a two-way communication. Like, how can I align myself with you, God, so that I can be the one to, you know, not single-handedly, it's not just me doing it by myself, but to bring the shalom, like you said, like, 
now when I walk by people, I, that, since this is on my mind, I'm thinking yeah. more like, what? Oh, look, there's someone that could use a smile, just small something as small as that. There's someone that okay. needs my help. I, I don't feel, I mean, it's kind of bad sometimes because now I sometimes drive by people broken down on the freeway and I'm like, ugh. Right. I'm going to probably have to do something about that or, or someone is. It's not just going to magically. <laughs> it becomes more dangerous. It, like the Christian life becomes, there's more at stake. Like there's a difference, like you see a, a person at your job or you just mentioned someone that you saw. God, you know, they, they look down. And there's a difference between saying, God, and your own sort of thoughts and your own prayers, I pray you would just bless her. But when you think about conspiring prayer and, and, and you know, God's loving nature and God is loving each moment uh, to the extent that God can, it's sort of like, wow, if God could make her smile, God would. But since God can't, now it's up to me. Like, okay, it's one thing to pray, God, you bless her, but God, how can we both bless her in this moment? The Christian life becomes more beautifully dangerous, if you will. There's more risk-taking. There's just like Jesus, I, I only do what I see my Father doing. And that requires a sweet a surrender to the Spirit of God and listening and saying, wow, this Christian life is an adventure. You want to use me. Uh, how can I conspire with you? And in, in my share, President Gordon B. Hinckley, the 15th president of the LDS Church, he had this beautiful sort of short, in my, in my view, sort of this encapsulation of conspiring prayer. May, may I quickly read it? Go for it. He says, In remembering together before the Lord the poor, the needy, and the oppressed, there is developed, unconsciously but realistically, a love for others above self, a respect for others, a desire to serve the needs of others. One cannot ask God to help a neighbor in distress without feeling motivated to do something oneself towards helping that neighbor. What miracles would happen in the lives of the children of the world if they would lay aside their own selfishness and lose themselves in the service of others? The seed from which this sheltering and fruitful tree may grow is best planted and nurtured in the daily supplications of the family. I thought to myself, he must have read my book. <laughs> but he didn't because he said that uh, well over a decade ago. But I, I just love that sort of really the, the seeds of what I'm talking about, which is conspiring prayer. Definitely. And I mean, I think I might be a bit of a hypocrite still in saying this since I probably don't do this as fully as I need to. but. I think from my observations and a lot of people that I've talked to that aren't Christians, one of the biggest things holding a lot of Christians back is, is you know, the traditional view of petitionary prayer. Because it's more, I'd say traditionally it's kind of more used to clear your conscience and be like, you know what, there's a lot of people that need something, I'm just going to pray and oh, did what I could do, that was it. <laughs> Whereas like you said, this is, I don't know, like it's dangerous, but it's also enlivening to the Christian because... When you pray like this, at least in the couple years I've been doing this, is like I said, it's like you're you're going to start noticing things that you didn't notice before, and you're going to feel prompted and feel the you know the promptings of the Holy Spirit to be like you know that that's what God can do for you. He can he can inspire your mind and help you be guided if you're listening yeah. to where to go. And it's it's like you said, it's a little scary and it's a little less comfortable maybe than the other view of like yeah I've. 
I prayed. I did what I could do. Let's just go about my daily life. Let God handle it. Yeah. But I think that's kind of as a mass of Christianity. I don't know. Like I said, I'm a hypocrite in a way, but I think that's what's holding Christianity back in a way is this this view of like, can't someone else do it? Yeah. And my concern is that some communities who pray petitionary prayers, and this includes myself. Listen, I, I think we're all hypocrites to some degree or another. I wrote the book. I certainly engage in conspired prayer, but it's not to the extent that I'd like to. But I think we might be guilty of what James warned us about, right? He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what good is it if we have prayer, but no deeds, right? If we see brothers and sisters in Christ without clothes or food and do nothing more than pray that God will give them peace and keep them warm and well-fed, what good is it if we pray for God to take care of the homeless, but don't tangibly attend to their physical needs? Is petitionary prayer without action dead? That's cutting to my heart right now. Ouch. <laughs> I alluded to this before, but I, I'm wondering, so this uncontrolling love view, it takes some coming to, and not everyone's going to buy off on that full sell right away. But do you think that your conspiring prayer view is limited to that kind of view of God, or does it work in other views? Corey, I think that's a, a great question. And the really beautiful thing about my view of prayer is that it works whether one believes in essential kenosis, which is sort of Ord's view in suggesting that God can't because of God's uncontrolling, loving nature. But it also works, in my view, with people, let's say, like William Hasker or uh, J.P. Moreland, who believe that, listen, you're limiting God's power by suggesting God can't. It's our uh, thinking that God can, but God chooses not to. Now, it could be choosing not to because God is love, but it's also because God has sort of set a decree in motion that God will sort of respect humans' free will. So, of course, Ord pushes back and say, well, listen, uh, you know, a God who can but chooses not to, well, can be kind of a moral monster, right? If, if a child was being sexually assaulted and you had the power to do something about it and you just watched it happen and did nothing, well, people would say, yeah, you're kind of uh, culpable and you're a moral monster. So a God who can but chooses not to, there's a problem with that. But my view says, listen, let's say that God chose to uh, respect human free will and chooses to intervene on, on a rare occasion. Like, for example, William Hasker says, frequent and routine intervention by God to prevent the misuse of freedom by his creatures and or to repair the harm done by this misuse would undermine the structure of human life and community intended in the plan of creation. Accordingly, such interventions should not expect uh, to be expected to occur. So there's people who say, yeah, you know what? God respects a free will. That's kind of a choice he made. But of course, God unilaterally intervenes. How do you even make sense of the resurrection of Jesus? How do you make sense of the creation of the world? I mean, God chose to create, God chose to single-handedly raise Jesus from the dead. That wasn't about 
sort of Jesus cooperating on the cellular level to kind of resurrect himself along with God. But even if their notion is true, my understanding of prayer still works because it's still within a universe or an existence where God chooses to respect human free will. So if we're in that sort of form of existence, conspiring prayer will still be the best kinds of prayers. Even J.P. Moreland, a poster child for conservative evangelical Christian philosophy theology, says sometimes God doesn't answer prayer because the answer involves coercing the free will of other people, and he is not going to do that, end quote. So my view of prayer works just as well with the kind of view that says God can, but chooses not to, most of the time. That's great. And like I said, I, I think that I was getting that vibe too. It was like, you know, no matter, almost no matter what view of God's power you hold, I don't think that you'd be worse off for doing this kind of prayer just based on the way the world works. Like, oh, I, even if God is fully controlling, like, oh, he, oh, one more person that's going to more closely listen to God and then do his will on the planet, you know, right. he's not going to say no to that. So Right, right. I, I think you can almost retool the classical Pascal's wager to this uh, view of, of prayer because it's like, well, you know, you could keep praying like you've always prayed and then get kind of the results of, you know, maybe one out of every hundred thousand prayers on behalf of other people gets answered. Or if you take Pascal's wager, it's like, you know, let's just say this conspiring prayer is the way it is. And then you start listening and then you become a more faithful servant of God. I would almost, you know, I would definitely argue, I guess. Then what have you to lose other than your comfort, maybe? <laughs> exactly. I mean, the world can only be a better place when people in, in beautiful, prayerful submission and, and surrender to God say, hey, God, use me. I want to be open to your spirit where you lead me. Give me eyes to see my coworkers in a new way, my family members in a new way. You know what? I'm. Yeah, I could pray God help them with their addiction, help them with healing this sickness or this ailment, or God, you know, provide them money to pay their rent. I could do that, but God, I want to live an adventure with you. And and Corey, imagine if whole churches were doing this, right? Because I've been a part of church prayer meetings where they petition God, they share their requests, maybe another song, let's call it a day. But can you imagine a congregation that says, listen, We have a view of God that says God loves to love. God's loving in each and every moment to the extent possible. We have some real deep prayer needs in our own community, whether in our localized church community or community at large. Let's dream with God right now. Let's envision what shalom might look like in their lives. And then instead of just running right to music, let's just shut up and listen. And listen, God, how do you want to use us in this? How do you want to use me? We just heard about Jim being in the hospital because he got into a car accident. God, how can you use me? How can you use us to increase beauty, goodness, truth, and shalom in his life and in his family's life? And then they wait and they listen and beautiful, creative endeavors come out to where they can be a part of God's adventure. The church is enlivened. They are invigorated. They feel like they're really doing something with God. It's exciting to sort of bring this into churches. Oh, yeah, that's powerful stuff. Like I said, no matter what your view of God is, I don't think anyone would disagree that that's probably a vision that God has for 
us, his children, to be doing. So, yeah, great stuff. All right, Mark, thanks so much for that. That's a beautiful view. Tell tell listeners more about where they can you know get your book and find out more about this idea. Sure. I, you know, have the book, Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God, that you can find that in some bookstores and mostly any uh, retailer online. And I also want to say that I also have a workbook that church small groups have been using, and it's really hearing great feedback. And it's like, I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you and, and your listeners to investigate and deconstruct and reconstruct for themselves. You know, I want them to ask the tough questions of prayer. I want them to, at the end of the day, come to their own conclusions about their unique theology of prayer. And I hope my book helps, but my workbook also has incredible, I think there's like a hundred questions, something like that altogether, that can help you shape your own theology of prayer. And then the, the website is conspiringprayer.com that they can check out some material that's not in the book. And uh, I'd love to hear from your listeners as well. And I'll throw this out there too. If a listener does want, if they do buy my book, I will give a digital copy of the workbook to them for free. So just going to throw that offer out there. Just send me an email saying, hey, I bought the book and I'll send you the, the workbook for free. Wow, excellent. I mean. I don't think it gets better than that. So. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Mark, again, for coming on and talking to us about prayer. And I, like I said, I, it's, it kind of gets me going. This, I'm really passionate about this, and I can tell you are too. So, Corey, it's been great. I appreciate you. appreciate your heart. a fan of your work. And thank you so much.